16, 13 through 28. And when you find it, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the king. We've been saying that over and over and over. We sang it this morning over and over. You are the king. You are our Lord. You have rightful dominion over the whole world and rightful dominion over us. Lord, as we come to the gospel of Matthew and do a a retrospect, a recap, remind us of all that we have learned Show us what Matthew showed us. Refresh in us all of the proofs that you are the king, Lord Jesus. All the information about your kingdom and its coming. And all of what it means to follow you, the king. Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your guidance. We pray for your illumination, Holy Spirit. We pray, Spirit, that you would strengthen me to be clear And Lord, we pray for all of us that you would help us to obey what your word says. Bless this time we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I looked back on our website this week and looked back at when was the first Sunday we started our series in Matthew. The intro sermon in Matthew was on May 9th, 2021. And including uh, today's sermon, it'll be 103 sermons in Matthew. So if we would have taken it straight, it would have only taken us two years, but we had lots of side series and all of that to do. Um, And we're coming to an end 
whenever you come to the end of a biblical book, it's kind of like you've, you know, you start with an intro, you look at the, the shape of the book to get a sense of where you're going, kind of an overview. And then you walk through the trees, you walk through the forest, and you look at each passage, tree by tree. And then you come out on the other side, and now it's time to look back and say, where, where did we just come? Where did we come from? And so what we're going to do this morning is just a basic review and recap of what, what Matthew has done. And we're going to just do it in two ways. We're going to talk about what Matthew has said. And in doing that, I'm going to walk you through quickly from chapter 1 through chapter 28 and just highlight, here are the things that we've seen. And then what we're going to do, because Scripture is never, intaking knowledge about Scripture is never about head knowledge. Yes, it shapes our worldview. Yes, it shapes our thinking. But it should change us. It should change our lives. If we leave unchanged from Scripture, there's something wrong. And so what we want to do in reviewing and seeing what is Matthew said, we then want to transition to how does Matthew change our lives? How should it shape us? So let's begin. What has Matthew said? What has Matthew said? What has he articulated in this book? Now, let me just give you the brief schematic. I've mentioned it multiple times in our time in Matthew together, but what is distinct about Matthew as a book is that it has these five blocks, these five blocks of teaching by Jesus, these, these opportunities that Jesus takes with his disciples to teach them. And surrounding those five blocks is narrative, but they all interlock. They all work together. And so what I'm going to try to do as we walk through this is to highlight those different blocks. The first block that we get is a narrative block starting in chapters one through four. And really, if you were to characterize this whole section in chapters one through four, it's all about the origins of the Christ. If you go back to Matthew 1.1, how he starts the whole book, he says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right there, Matthew, and in the rest of chapter 1, he is really giving the credentials of the Christ. What does it mean to be the Christ? The, being the Christ means that, uh, the term just means anointed one, but it means being the anointed one, the king of the line of David. Hence, this is why Matthew says the son of David, and then going back to the promises of Abraham. And then Matthew gives a genealogy, and what is Matthew doing? He's saying, hey, Jesus has the right, he has the legal right to be the Christ. But not only that, he shows how the birth of Jesus happened, that there was no human father involved, only, only God through the Holy Spirit with the Virgin Mary issuing in a holy birth of Jesus. And then, having given the credentials of Jesus' birth in chapter 2, we see uh, kingmakers, wise men from the east, magi, come from the east and acclaim and understand these people that should not, they don't really have revelation, they don't really have the scriptures, and yet they come and they are acclaiming Jesus to be king. Unlike Jerusalem with Herod the king, or the purported king at its head, they're missing it. They, the religious leaders don't go after him at all. And that kind of sets the stage in some sense for the rest of the book of Matthew, where Jesus comes to his own people 
He comes as the rightful king, but he's not acclaimed by them as king. And in fact, it's the outsiders that acclaim him to be king. Then in chapter, and what happens is we have a murderous leader in Jerusalem. We have a king who is going to cry, try to kill the rightful king, and Jesus flees to Egypt. And in so doing, he sort of relives Israel's life. Uh, you think about the, the death of the babies leading up to the exile, or leading up to the exodus from Egypt. It's reminiscent of that. Jesus really kind of embodies Israel in a person. That's what the king of Israel does. He embodies the nation in a person, and he relives that. And, it, and for Matthew, it points up the reality that here is the rightful king. He is the rightful leader of um, Israel. He's reliving Israel's life. And then in chapter 3, we have the herald of the king. We have John the Baptist preparing the way of the nation, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heavens has drawn near. He's drawn near because the king has drawn near, and John is preparing the way. He's preparing the way through the waters of salvation and judgment, that uh, judgment is coming, that the Messiah is coming, and with the Messiah, the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom means that you're going to be judged. But if you call on God through repentance, through faith in the Messiah, there will be cleansing. There will you'll become part of a renewed Israel, a kingly and priestly people. Jesus himself is baptized, and when he is baptized, he does so to fulfill all righteousness, to show that he's the one to bring about all righteousness for the nation. And here is one of the few times in the Gospel of Matthew that we see the Father speak. And in so doing, this is all about identification. All of these early chapters are about identification. And in chapter 3, Jesus is identified as the Messiah. He is endorsed from heaven. You can see this in 3, 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The marking of the Spirit on Jesus' life and ministry. He is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is identified using that imagery of the dove, uh, even going back to creation. Here is the one who's going to bring new creation. Here is the one who's going to bring the new covenant. Even as John said, uh, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is indicating the new covenant that's supposed to restore Israel as a nation. And by extension, the nation's of the world. And here the father identifies, here's the one, here's my son, here's my king, here is my righteous one. Which then leads right into Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Jesus is driven out by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted like Israel was. So he's still kind of reliving Israel's past in his person, but he's also reliving Adam's temptations. Uh, Adam was tempted and he failed. But here we see a son, a son of God, who succeeded despite the severity and the pressure of the temptation. He never gave in, but was completely submitted to the Father. Never shortcut the cross, never shortcut a way to get to his own kingdom but walk the path that this father has for him. So if you take chapters one through four altogether, it's all about identifying Jesus as the Christ, showing the origins of the Christ, 
preparing for his ministry. By the end of chapter 4, we see Jesus calling his first disciples. We see him proclaiming a message. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The same thing that John was preaching. It's drawn near in the person of the king. And because the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom means judgment, if you're going to enter the kingdom, there's going to be a judgment Jesus calls for repentance, and then he calls disciples, his first disciples. He says, come, follow me. And they leave everything, and they follow him. So all of chapters 1 through 4 are showing us the beginnings of the Christ, the beginnings of his ministry. That's the first narrative block, which leads us right into the first teaching block in chapters 5 through 7, what we know is the Sermon on the Mount. And we see this in 5.1, seeing the crowd. So all these crowds, they hear about Jesus, and we hear about Jesus healing and proclaiming this message. And all these people from all this region are coming to Jesus. And Jesus sees the crowds, and he goes up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. See, the instruction of the Sermon on the Mount is primarily for disciples, even though the crowds kind of listen in on the whole thing. And what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? The Sermon on the Mount is all about kingdom righteousness. Uh, it's, it's Jesus saying, if you're going to be a subject of my kingdom, if you're going to uh, enter the kingdom, if you're going to follow me as a disciple, what are you going to live like? What are the kingdom rules? What is kingdom life? What does kingdom righteousness look like? And we can see this in 5, 17 through 20 as he begins kind of the, uh, the main body of his sermon. It says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus comes as the Messiah, and Jesus comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And if you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, what that's going to mean is the Spirit, as predicted in the Old Testament, is going to indwell you, and he's going to change your life. So as you come to Jesus as King and as Messiah, he, you're going to, your light, whole life's going to be changed so that you're going to live with a superior righteousness, as articulated in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, such that if you do not have that righteousness, it shows that you don't truly follow Jesus which is exactly how he ends his sermon. In 721 through 23, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, which was articulated in the sermon. See, Jesus in the sermon, he doesn't abolish the law. He says, here's what the law was always supposed to point you to. Here is living from the heart righteousness that you're supposed to have, what the law was always supposed to have. And I enable you to do that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What's the Father's will? It's the actions and the righteousness that is articulated in the sermon. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. It's not about what you say. It's about how you live not about whether you say that Jesus is King and Lord. It's about, do you live it out as baptized by the Holy Spirit if you are a follower of Jesus? And even at the end of this sermon, what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates to the crowds Jesus' authority. He was teaching them with authority as the true King. 
and not as their scribes. So we've seen in chapters 1 through 4 the origin of the Christ. We see him articulate his fundamental message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. For his disciples, he teaches them in 5 through 7, here's what kingdom righteousness looks like. And we see the authority of Jesus and his teaching authority. And then it moves in chapters 8 through 9 into the second narrative section where Jesus' authority is not only demonstrated in his teaching, but it's demonstrated in his uh, healing, in his miracles. So if you look through chapters 8 through 9, there are a ton of miracles. There are a ton of uh, things that are, uh, that are happening that just demonstrate Jesus' authority. He forgives someone's sins. He heals a leper. He uh, heals a centurion's servant from afar. And really what he's giving in all of these things, he even does exorcisms of demons. He is giving kingdom foretaste. He's giving a preview of coming attractions. He is showing, um, here's what his kingdom is going to look like. And he further shows that he is indeed the Christ. You can kind of see a summary of this in 935. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near and healing every disease and every affliction. Nothing stands in his way, demonstrating once again his identity. Now, in that section of chapters 8 and 9, he also does teach further about discipleship. It's not in the narrative section that he doesn't teach other things. He does. And we see more through this section. What is the cost of discipleship? What is the cost of following Jesus? 8, 18 through 22 says this. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And, this, and a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. You see, nothing takes precedence over following Jesus. It's not a life of comfort and ease, but it is a life of devotion and dedication because Jesus is the authoritative king. And as he has trained his disciples, he's, he's gathered disciples, and now uh, he's, he's called disciples like Matthew, the tax collector in chapter 9. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he's calling those to repentance and faith and following, and he's gathered them, he's trained them, and now he's ready to send them out on mission in chapter 10, which is the second main teaching section in Matthew. It's the, the, the mission he gives to the disciples, 10.1, and he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Verse 5 and 6, he, he, he equips the 12 to do this. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same message. The kingdom is at hand. It's near. It's drawn near in the person of Christ. He's giving kingdom foretaste. He's now even giving authority to the disciples to give kingdom foretaste. And he's directing the message first and foremost to the nation of Israel. To call them to repentance. But what happens in this chapter 10 is that Jesus describes, here's your commission. Here's how people are going to respond to you, mainly negatively. And then here's how you respond to the response. 
And even though Jesus is there's giving instruction for his disciples to a mission to Israel, as you work through chapter 10, you begin to understand that Jesus is looking ahead, farther ahead to the mission that he will give at the end of Matthew to the nations eventually as well. Here's a good summary of how Jesus' disciples are supposed to think about their mission Verses 34 through 39, as they proclaim the message, the gospel, the good news that the kingdom has drawn near, they're to expect this. Verse 34 through 39, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is all or nothing. This is Jesus saying, you can't love anyone more than you love me. Your devotion is to me. And you, you're going to be mistreated. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be persecuted to the point of the most shameful death imaginable on a cross. And yet it's about following me. I am worth it. So he sends them out on that mission, gives them instruction And that instruction carries over even to today for his disciples. So we've seen the kingdom mission, but then what do we see next in the next narrative section in chapters 11 through 12? Opposition to the Christ. So the opposition he says is going to happen in chapters, chapter 10, he experiences it in chapters 11 through 12. Even John the Baptist has a question. Are you the one who's to come? It doesn't look like we were expecting. You don't look like the conquering messianic king to reclaim all of Israel. You don't look like what we were expecting. Are you really the one? And what we, t- what we find in chapters 11 through 12 is that not only is there questions from people like John the Baptist, there's also beginning opposition from the religious leaders. From they, they see Jesus doing these miracles, and the crowds are saying, hey, maybe this is the son of David. Maybe this is the Christ. Maybe this is the real king. And the religious leaders make the fatal claim that, no, he's doing this by the power of Satan. Why? Because they want to, withhold, they want to hold on to their power. And so by the end of chapter 12, what is amazing is that because of this opposition, Jesus says it's over for that generation of Israel. The door to the kingdom coming is closed. Or better, it's been postponed. You see, what Jesus says in chapters 11 through 12 is that he says that if you, the generation of Israel, receive the message that John and I are bringing, um, then John's going to be the Elijah who is to come, and I'm going to be the Christ, the Lord who is to come and establish the kingdom. But the response of that generation, the opposition meant that the kingdom didn't come. We can see Jesus' um, condemnation of that generation, that generation of Israel, in 12, 43 through 45. It says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, he's using a parable to describe what's going on with that generation. When the unclean spirit has gone out of that person, it passes through waterless places, 
seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I came, I'm cleaning house. I'm cleaning out disease. I'm cleaning out demons. I'm showing my authority as king. He's doing all of that. He's cleaning house in Israel. But because his fundamental message of repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near is not being received by and large in Israel, it's like him cleaning the house, going away, and the last state of Israel is going to be worse than, it, than before he came. And so the question is, by the time you get to chapter 12, it's like, wait, it's all over? The kingdom has drawn near and it's all over? What's next? Which is where we get the third of five discourses by Jesus in chapter 13. Chapter 13 is an answer after Jesus' condemnation of that generation. What's next? What now with respect to the kingdom? It's still going to come, but it's going to look different. And the way it's going to look, if we were to summarize, Jesus now speaks parables. He speaks parables. This is new in his ministry. He speaks parables not to make himself understood, but to actually make it more difficult for people to understand him. See, that's what happens when you receive revelation that's clear and you reject it. It gets harder and harder to hear. God might still give revelation, but it becomes harder and harder to heal. That's a form of judgment. The parables are a form of judgment against Israel. They're like a two-way mirror, uh, or a one-way mirror, I should say. Uh, they, uh, they're clear and explained to the disciples. That's what happens in Matthew 13. But to the rest, to the crowds, to those who have not received, who have not repented, they become mysterious. They become a form of revelation, but it's not, they're hearing, but they're not hearing. They're perceiving, but they don't understand. And so what does Jesus articulate in these kingdom parables? He articulates the kingdom of heaven program between Jesus' ministry and the end of the age. He describes in the parable of the sower why so few respond to the kingdom message. He describes how the kingdom is going to start small with his disciples, and it's gradually going to grow to permeate the world until there's wheat and tares side by side, until Jesus comes back and separates the wheat from the tares at the end of the age. Talks about how the kingdom, there's going to be a costly purchase for the kingdom, like that pearl or like treasure hidden in the field, whose true value, the true value of the kingdom will not be exposed or possessed until the end of the age. Likewise, what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus purchases the kingdom. Doesn't look like much now, but it will when he comes to take back what is his. That's what the kingdom looks like, the program from Jesus' first ministry to his second coming. Moving out of chapter 13, what then happens from chapter, basically the end of chapter 13 to uh, chapter, the end of chapter 17 is we get perspectives on the Christ. Who is believing what about the Christ? How are different people responding to the Christ? And what we see at the end of chapter 12 and at the end of chapter 13 is Jesus' family and Jesus' 
hometown in Nazareth, those who are closest to Jesus, those who should know better, actually reject Jesus, picturing what is actually happening in Israel and in Jerusalem. What he says is his true family is his disciples, his brothers and sisters. We see the response of the crowds. The crowds are still there. They're still interested. They're still in it for the goodies. But the question is, are you going to repent? Are you going to follow the Christ? We see the disciples. The disciples understand to an extent, and yet their faith is little. We see the leaders of Israel in full opposition to Jesus. What we actually see, which is astounding in these chapters, in chapter 14 through 17, basically, is the biggest picture, the most uh, of faith is in the Canaanite woman. Someone who comes from outside of Israel, who exercises true faith. She is persistent. She knows who Jesus is. She acclaims who Jesus is, and she goes to him and persistently trusting him to help her. In the middle of this section two, we get where chapter 16, what I read at the beginning, which is really kind of a pivot in the whole gospel. I read 16, 13 through 28, and in that section, we see Peter acclaim Jesus to be the Christ. The disciples get it. They understand. They know that Jesus is the king. They don't get it all the way because right after this, Peter is still thinking about, yeah, the kingdom is going to come right now. We're going to be in there. We're going to be, uh, uh, and th- but this is contrary to what Jesus says. He says, from here on out, he began to tell them, 1621, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter's like, what? No, this is totally antithetical to our idea of you being king. We understand that you're the Christ, but you're out of your mind, Jesus. That can't be true. Jesus rebukes Peter. He's, in what he's articulating, he's sounding like Satan who wants to shortcut the cross. See, after Jesus' rejection, he's showing them what it means to be the Christ. It's not just about ruling the world, although that is very much true. Jesus never denies the idea that the Messiah is political or military. He is, but he's not only that. He is the Messiah who will die, and he will die to form his church. We talked a lot about this passage. Like I said, uh, 16, 13 through 20 is critical to understand the church in relation to the new covenant and the kingdom of God. Being the Christ, being the son of David, means that you are a temple builder. That's part of the Davidic covenant. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church, my assembly. He's going to build his temple people. People that are composed of people like Peter who confess him to be the Christ, the king. And he's going to build this temple and the gates of Hades which are swallow up in destruction, those who are opposed to God, it's not going to withstand the church. In fact, he gives to the church authority in terms of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It becomes a representative 
It becomes a representative of heaven on earth. It becomes an embassy of the kingdom on earth, beginning with the apostles, beginning with the original 12, and as we see later in chapter 18, continuing with the local church down to this day. But there's this shift. There's this shift on the Christ. Who do you think the Christ is? And Jesus begins to show them that the Christ is not only the king, but he's the king that's going to suffer for his people. And if you will follow him, then you embrace that same reality. 16, 20, uh, 24 through 28. Anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? Because paradoxically, if you want to save your life, you lose it. If you lose your life for the sake of the Christ, for the sake of the king, for the sake of his kingdom, if you bet everything now, you lose everything now, everything in this life now, and you bet it all in the future, you bet it all on Jesus Christ, that he is coming again to bring his kingdom, you find true life. It means you disown yourself, living for yourself, you are willing to, live, uh, to, to embrace the most shameful death in the eyes of this world, take up your cross, and follow Jesus as his disciple. That is the call. It's paradoxical, the values of the kingdom. Right in the midst of this, Jesus gives them reassurance in chapter 17, where we see the Father speak again. Remember, the Father spoke at the baptism, and now we see the Father speak again at the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the veil is kind of torn away for a second, and Jesus' glory, his true worth and majesty are unveiled briefly to three disciples. They hear this voice. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to what he's telling you about who he is and about what it means for the Christ to suffer and to die for the sake of his people. This leads into, so Jesus is establishing his new covenant people, his temple assembly, his church, his kingdom embassy. He's doing that, which leads right into chapter 18, because in chapter 18, we get the fourth teaching section by Jesus for his disciples, where he essentially tells them, what does kingdom community look like? In other words, what does the church look like? What does the local church look like? What values does it have? He describes humility like a child. You're not getting in unless you humble yourself like a child. It looks like uh, disciples valuing fellow disciples, putting no stumbling blocks in their way. It looks like killing and exposing sin, not only in yourself, but in the community at large, because they are the representative community of Jesus. And it looks like forgiving one another when brothers and sisters sin against one another. That's what chapter 18 talks about. Which leads us to the final movement, really, to Jerusalem in chapters 19 through 20, 23. See, Jesus, in all of this, from really chapter 4 all the way up through chapter 18, he's been up in Galilee. He's been in the north. But now, as he has set the trajectory in telling his disciples, I need to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die because the Messiah is not going to only reign. He's going to ransom his citizens. He's going to ransom his people. And so what we see in these chapters in this narrative block is Jesus moving from north to south towards Jerusalem. 
And as he moves towards Jerusalem, he's still instructing his disciples and he's still instructing them in the, the, the values of the kingdom, the values of his kingdom are paradoxical. They're inverted from the values of the world. So he talks in chapter 19 about marriage. He talks to the rich young ruler about, it's not about self-reliance to please God. He talks to the disciples about not looking at reward in comparison with others. There is a reward, but you don't compare yourself with others. He talks about uh, status versus service. He inverts all the values of the world as he's leading and walking that very reality. See, as he is going to the cross as the Messiah, that is totally inverted from what people expected, which shows the inverted values of the kingdom. He's teaching that to his disciples. And then he enters Jerusalem, chapter 21. 1 through 11, he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah saying, he gets on a donkey, he rides in Jerusalem, and in no uncertain terms is saying, I am the Messiah, I am the king, and he is confronting the epicenter of the life of Israel, the epicenter uh, of, of, of the, the rulers of Israel, the corrupt shepherds. He's saying, I'm the king. And the question is, the Galilean crowds are celebrating, yes, this is the Messiah, Hosanna to the son of David, but then there's this handoff to the Jerusalem crowds. They ask, who is this? And that is the major question. Will they accept Jesus like many of the Galileans have? And so we see Jesus confront the temple, the authority of the religious leaders. He, he issues parables condemning that generation, condemning the falseness of the shepherds of Israel. They try to trick Jesus and he outwits them and he shows his authority over them all. But it is clear that that generation is, of Israel is in opposition, was in opposition to Jesus. He ends in chapter 23 with a scathing rebuke and woe, pronouncement of judgment on the leadership of Israel, which is leading the people to false conceptions of God, false conceptions of the law, false conceptions of God's word, false conceptions of the Messiah. It's not just the leaders that are indicted, it is also the people. Because he ends in 23, 37 through 39 saying this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem and Israel will see Jesus again, but not until they bow the knee. Not until they surrender to him as the Messiah. Which leads right into the fifth and final teaching section in the gospel of Matthew, because the disciples come up to Jesus as he's leaving the temple, as he's headed out to the Mount of Olives, he's saying, when's all this stuff going to happen? And they mean the destruction of the temple and his coming and all of it. And in chapter 24, he gives signs of his coming, of the end of the age, of the final destruction of the temple. He says that in, amongst all of that discussion, he says in 2414, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a witness to all the nations. And then the end, the end of the age, when the kingdom comes, when the king comes, when Jesus comes back. But he says, 
Those are the signs. Those are what you look for. But as far as timing, because they ask about the timing too, when's it all going to happen? When's the timing? What are the signs and what's the timing? But in chapter 25, he essentially says for the timing, just be prepared and faithful looking towards the judgment. He says, don't worry about the timing. Be faithful. Live faithfully, always looking towards the judgment. Until he comes back says this in 25, 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Be alert. Stay alert. 25, 31, 32, he gives us the picture of the Son of Man coming in judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Jesus will be the judge at the end of days, at the end of the age. And people will be divided based on, how did you treat his disciples? It's not just people generally in that judgment, but how did you treat his disciples? He instructs his disciples in this final discourse, here's what you look for, here's the signs. Don't worry about the timing, just be prepared and faithful looking ahead to the judgment. Live like the judgment is real, because it is which leads into the final narrative section from chapter 26 through 28, where Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus is not caught unaware by his death. He has predicted it multiple times. No one except a, 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 the, the woman who anoints him for his death, she believes, that, she believes him that he's headed for death. He predicts that his disciples are going to flee he goes before the Father in Gethsemane and says, is there another way, if there's another way than this to deal with the sin of my people? Is there? There's not. He surrendered to the Father's will. And he, in all of this, even at the Last Supper, he shows that in his death, he is instituting the new covenant. He is showing whether where the gospel started, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is going to the cross in atonement to pay for his people's sin, to bear the wrath of God in their place, and to create a new people, a people who are gathered together by and centered on his life and his blood shed in their behalf, which is why he institutes the sign of the new covenant, the Lord's Supper, in discussing with his disciples. The ratification ceremony of the new covenant, the blood of the covenant, when Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross as the king. At the cross, we went, we've gone through it in the previous weeks. He is there, he is being mocked as, yes, the son of God, but overlapping with that concept is the idea of him being the king of Israel. That's the sign, the placard that was over him, the charge. This is the king of Israel. This is the king of the Jews. Everything at that moment, his disciples are gone. Everyone is mocking him around the foot of the cross, and it looks like this couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And yet at his death, as soon as he dies... 
surrounding his death, the father, in essence, speaks again. Not audibly, but with supernatural signs that show that what Jesus said was true, that he really is the king. Remember how Jesus dies? He, he dies with this cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we said that's a quote from Psalm 22, and really it's, a, it's the whole psalm. It's not that the, uh, the speaker is abandoned by God. It is that he is trusting God. And what we see immediately after his death, 27, 45 through 54, he is vindicated. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Supernatural darkness. God's darkness of judgment. God is there at the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Access to God and the transition from the old temple to a new one in the church. Torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The Father vindicated Jesus at the cross. He purchased forgiveness of sins. He purchased resurrection. And then Jesus himself is raised from the dead. And for the disciples that had fled from him, he shows mercy, calls them brothers. We saw last week when they meet up again in Galilee. They're hesitant because they don't want to approach him, having abandoned Jesus, but he moves towards them and he commissions them. As the core, as the foundation of the church, with the church's mission. It ends this way. 18 through 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make the disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is what Matthew has said. How should Matthew change us? Now you have to, when you answer that question for any biblical book, how do I apply this? How do I, how does this change me? You have to recognize, well, what was the application for the original audience? What was it supposed to do for the original audience? Who was the original audience? Well, it was a Jewish and probably Jewish Christian audience. And what has Matthew been doing in all of this? Whether they're believers in Jesus or whether, and they're, they're, they're wondering, is Jesus really the king? Is this really? What, what, where's the kingdom? What, where is it? If he's the king, where's the kingdom? Or whether they're unbelievers. What has Matthew been doing all this time? He's been doing this. With his account, he's been proving Jesus is king. 
been giving instructions about the kingdom. Where is it? Where is it going to, when's it going to come? What's, what's going to be like? And also how to follow the king, how to be a disciple of King Jesus. How has Matthew showed that Jesus is king? He has shown it throughout the whole narrative. Things that happened in Jesus' life that Jesus wasn't even direct control of as a human that fulfilled prophecy. The miracles that Jesus did, the authority of his teaching, the vindication by the Spirit of God on his life and by the Father in his baptism, at the transfiguration, at the cross, testifying that this is really the King. This really is the Son of God. This is God the Son incarnate, walking in flesh, and the rightful King of the whole world. Sometimes you, 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 I mean, we hear this often, right? That people say, well, you know, Jesus was just a good teacher, or Jesus was even a prophet. But I, I think those people have not, like, read what Jesus said. Because if you read what Jesus says, uh, this isn't a good teacher. The guy's a lunatic if, he's, uh, if, if what he said is totally false, if he's just, he's, he's just, lying to people, or he's just out of his mind to say the things that he's saying, he's calling for unswerving allegiance, bar none. You, you, C.S. Lewis made this kind of uh, three-way, oper- you've only got three things you can do with Jesus Christ. You say he's a liar, like he just totally deceived everyone. But that won't square with the eyewitness reports of the resurrection, right? Because he really did die. That's one of the most historically, even skeptics of Jesus, even those who don't actually believe in Jesus, Jesus really did die on the cross. But then we've got eyewitness reports that he rose again, vindicating what he says. So he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. That's the other thing you hear people say. That's the only other thing. This guy's out of his mind to say these sorts of things. But when you read Jesus's words in the gospel, they're eminently sound, they are uh, surprising. They are um, provocative. He's in his right mind. Or the only other opportunity is Jesus is who he said he is. He is the king. And he is. He is the rightful king. He is at the right hand of the Father right now. He taught about his kingdom. The kingdom drew near with Jesus. Uh, with all, Jesus came. He is the king. He brought these foretastes of the coming kingdom. No disease. No demon possession. Uh, plenty of food. We think of the feeding of the 5,000. Abundance. He gives foretastes with his miracles. So his kingdom drew near. But because of the rejection of Israel, it didn't come then. See, Jesus' kingdom is sometimes, um, you know, in reaction to thinking of king, Jesus' kingdom only as physical, which is kind of what the Jews were doing. It's political and military, and we, we don't want to think of that. We, we over-spiritualize Jesus' kingdom. It's out there floating, and it's in your heart, and it, it's all good, and it feels nice and warm and fuzzy. It's both. It is both physical and spiritual. Yes, the physical kingdom didn't come, but Jesus, when he did come, he died to purchase his subjects for his kingdom. No other king in history has done that. To deal with people's sin against God. No other, kingdom in history, no other king in history could do that. He died for his subjects to deal with their sins so that they could enter his kingdom and fellowship with him and the Father for all eternity. And so where's the kingdom now? It's postponed. It'll come. 
when Jesus comes again. Well, what about the church? Well, the church is an embassy. He's building, he's gathering kingdom citizens through making disciples. That's the mission he gave the church to do. He's building his temple here on earth. The church is an embassy. It has the keys of the kingdom to represent Jesus on earth until Jesus comes back. And the church will not fail. Now, this local church may go away. There's lots of local churches that have gone away in history. But Jesus' program will not fail. He said, the gates of Hades will not stand against it. He will come back. He will rescue his people who are waiting for him, and he will judge those who are opposed to him. Which leads us into that third component of what Matthew's been teaching, following the king. What does it mean to follow the king? It means first, repentance, which means you turn your allegiance from sin and self. You are done living for yourself. You are denying yourself. You are done. It's not just about actions. Sometimes we think about repentance as, okay, I need to fix it. I need to do penance. And I need to do this, this, and this so Jesus is happy with me. There's nothing you can do to make Jesus or the Father or the, uh, the Spirit happy with you. Repentance is allegiance change. It's bigger than doing uh, just individual actions. It means I lay down arms. I bow the knee. I surrender to King Jesus, and he owns me. He owns my life. And I look to him in faith, trust, that he, what he has done on the cross, that that really did atone for my uh, wickedness and my sin so that I am acceptable in God's eyes. And that faith is not just a once for all faith. It is a faithful faith. It is a following faith. It is a public faith that goes public in the waters of baptism as Jesus called for, as we saw last week in his commission. If you want to follow King Jesus today, maybe you're not. means you repent. You change your allegiance. Jesus is king. I'm not means you trust him to pay for your sins, and it means you follow him, and it means you go public with, you, um, with your faith in the waters of baptism. And it means that at, in living out that faithful faith and following Jesus, you're going to live out the kingdom righteousness that he specified, Matthew 5 through 7 and elsewhere, while at doing what? Pursuing the king's mission. He gave the commission, he gave the mission of making disciples to all of us means your job as an individual disciple and in partnership with the local church is to proclaim the good news of the king and his kingdom until he comes back. And it means you expect to be shamed and mistreated and hated by the world around you. It's not an appealing job description unless Jesus is king, unless he really is who he said he is. And he is. Jesus is king. This is the big idea of Matthew. Jesus is king. His kingdom has drawn near and is coming. Loyally follow the king. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king. You have rightful claim on everyone's allegiance in this room. And even for us that have surrendered, we've repented and placed our faith in you. We know we don't live perfect lives as kingdom citizens like we would like to. But Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful. That we would follow you faithfully. That we would represent you. That we would proclaim you. That we would exalt you. That we would not make you small, but that we would make you big with our words and our lives. Because that's who you are.
Oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the paltry things in the world that we entice us, that entangle us. You call them thorns in the parable of the sower that choke us out. They're so stupid and paltry compared to you, the real and true king. Lord, please forgive our disobedience. Forgive our cowardice. Forgive our, 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 our just living life how we think we ought to live rather than seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. But Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have purchased your people. You have purchased your kingdom citizens. You have atoned for our iniquity, which is gross and, and worthy of damnation, and yet you have atoned for it and you have resurrected to give us the hope of resurrection life in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, for those in this room that know you, we love you. And we want to follow you. Help us to do so. Help us to heed what Matthew has said. And help us to not leave unchanged. Lord, for those who are in this room who do not know you, you know who they are. Maybe they don't even know who they are. But you do. Lord, I pray that in mercy and in grace, you would show yourself to them. No one knows the Son except the Father. He knows the Father except the Son and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal. So we pray that you would do that. We pray that you would bring repentance and faith. Help us to be faithful ambassadors. And as a church, Lord, this local church that you have entrusted with the authority of the keys of the kingdom to speak on behalf of heaven. Help us to use that authority that represents you and not in, in a wrong way. Help us to be faithful together as disciples in this local church. Lord, there's many more things we could ask, but we, we leave it there. We love you and we trust you. We pray that you would change us through your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction, also from Revelation. Revelation 11 this time. Revelation 11, 15 through 18, when Jesus comes back. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the church. That is what you have to look forward to, church. You are sent.